The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. It seems very, very odd that I wouldn't say Matthew, because uh, that consumed so much of my ministry here in Berean since I became the pastor. But now we're finished with the book of Matthew, and uh, it was a great study as we looked into the life of the most important person in the world. And the good news about the Bible is this, is that no matter what subject that we study, we're not going to be far at all from our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has all power and authority, is the one by whom our lives must be consumed. So no matter what subject that we touch, you can be sure of this, that Christ has authority in that area. Now in just a few weeks, we're going to return to the study of Christ, and it's not going to be from the gospel accounts. Uh, This time it will come from the book of Hebrews, where we'll see Christ in his preeminence. We'll study about his superiority in heaven and in earth. And this is a very good thing for us to remember as we begin this subject today. And for the next nine weeks, we're going to talk about this particular subject. And what we're going to do here is kind of flip things around and go in the exact opposite direction of where we've been before. In our studies previously in Matthew, we've studied about the virtues of Christ. And there simply are not enough superlatives to describe the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this study is going to be different because we're going to study God's greatest enemy and consequently also your greatest enemy. And the superlatives that we'll talk about here of a very different nature, a very different nature because uh, this person is unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. He is perfect in his righteousness. He is truth in everything. But this person is evil in all of its imperfections. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, but hatred and lies came by this evil nemesis. And you already know who I'm talking about. you got the graphic on the screen. Uh, The title of the message tells you what it's about. This is about the devil, the one who is Satan, who is the adversary of God and his people. And Satan is the source of evil in the world. He is the one that Christ was sent to conquer to remedy the great harm that he did to the human race. And even as the Apostle John said, Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I'd like for us to look, if you would please, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, in which the Apostle Paul describes the problem that God's people have with Satan. In verse number 10 of Ephesians 6, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now you'll notice there that Paul puts our difficulties with Satan in the terms of warfare. That this is a battle that we fight. It's a battle in which we must be vigilant. It requires preparation and determination. It requires constant readiness. It requires us to put on God's armor of protection. 
And that's because Satan is not an easy foe. He will meet every resolve that you have to defeat him with another attack from another angle. He is very good at this. Paul describes his activity as being the wiles of the devil, and that means his methods, his trickery, the art and the cunning by which he goes to about to destroy us, to deceive us. And Satan is very confident in that ability. He is very confident in the ability that he has against even those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have to look any further than things that we've studied in the Gospel of Matthew to find this out. I, I refer you to Matthew chapter 4. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus was baptized. And in that great scene where John the Baptist baptized him, the Father spoke from heaven. He said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then you go into the fourth chapter, and there you find that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted and to be tried by Satan. And there you find Satan speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he talks to him as if he himself were God. And he approached the Son of God as if he were an equal to him. And he had no fear at all to try to tempt the Lord Jesus and to try to drive a wedge between him and his heavenly Father. And you see him there trying to get Jesus to submit to his authority as the devil offered him the kingdoms of the world. And I think that's enough to tell you that Satan is an uncommon enemy. He is the antithesis of God. He can make us think that he is God. He is so powerful that he makes you believe that he has more advantages than God, that he is as powerful as God. And there's this interesting statement that's made in 2 Thessalonians about the Antichrist, who is the embodiment of Satan. There it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that is just an astounding statement of Satan's power. That he is able in this time and that time to invade God's temple in Jerusalem. There his ambassador sits. The Antichrist will be there in the place where the holiness of God shall reign or should reign. And he will make himself to be God. Now friends, that's the enemy that we're fighting. He is powerful. He wasn't afraid to tempt the Son of God and tried to drive that wedge between him and his father. He's stronger than demons that follow him. We see demons cowering at the commands of Christ, at the presence of Jesus. Jesus cast out demons and they begged him not to send them into abyss. But it doesn't seem that Satan has that kind of fear and oh, the Bible clearly says that he should fear because everlasting destruction is going to be his end. And Satan only has as much power as God gives him. And Satan will use his power only as long as God has determined. And you need to understand this, that when Satan works, in the ultimate sense that he is going to work out doing the things that God wants him to do in order to accomplish God's purposes. God's purposes are always being accomplished in a myriad of ways himself. So you need to understand this very clearly, that you aren't any match for Satan. And so you're warned to be on the lookout for him. You're never going to defeat him without divine energy. You can't do anything to stop him unless someone more powerful than Satan 
helps you. Well, this passage in Ephesians goes on to describe how that we need to equip ourselves for the fight. And make no mistake about it, you are in a fight. Satan is opposing you even now, even while I'm attempting to preach this message and laboring to make you aware of him. The, uh, the devil is working on you now. And this is a battle, it's a struggle that you're going to be in as long as you're on this earth. And so you can mark it well. Paul said and warns us that the battle is not against flesh and blood. We're, if we were battling our equals, if we were battling other people, and that was the problem, perhaps we could win in our own strength. But we're not battling flesh and blood. We are battling powers that exist in a supernatural world. Powers that are beyond our ability. Powers that you can't handle without the power of God. And chief among all these powers that we fight is Satan. And so I'm warning you right now, you have to respect the power of Satan. And if you don't, he'll have you right where he wants you and do with you what he wants to do. And so to fight him, we must understand him. We have to know the wiles. We have to know the weapons that he uses. He has many different things that are at his disposal, and we can know them. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we are not ignorant of his devices. And that was very good for the Apostle Paul. He had a lot of experience with the devil. He fought the devil daily. But the sad truth is there are many Christians who are not aware of all of his devices. And so we need to learn the Scripture as Paul knew the Scripture and understand how to wrestle with the devil and to defeat him. Now, as I said, Satan is working on you even now while I preach this message. If you're having difficulty listening to what I have to say, if you're having trouble with this and you say, well, it's getting close to noon, what are we going to do now? I mean, it's time to go eat. I can't listen to that message. Get it over with. Get done with it. Well, that's the devil. That's the devil speaking through your stomach. He can do that too. If you have struggle, struggles living out your Christianity at work and trying to be an example for Christ, you can mark it down. That is the devil that's causing your problem. If you have trouble in your own home, keeping from seeing the things that you ought not to see and looking at things you ought not to look at and doing things you ought not to do, mark it down. That is the devil who's fighting against you. He lurks behind every door. He's waiting around every corner. He is above you. He is beneath you. He constantly works to destroy your testimony and your effectiveness for Christ. And so what I'm trying to do is to give you an impression that if he was brave enough to attempt to tempt Christ himself, then he's not going to have any trouble with you. And he'll spend time with you. Now, Satan is a great counterfeiter. And if Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, you can expect that the counterfeiter says the same thing. I will never leave you or forsake you. But Satan comes with a twisted truth. He won't leave you because he spends every day pestering you as badly as he can. He's not going to leave you. He will never forsake you. He's always going to be there fighting against you to try to get you to turn away from the living God. Now we notice again that statement that I made just a moment ago about 2 Corinthians where Paul said that we don't have to be or we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And certainly we don't need to be because the Bible tells us about him. There's a lot said about Satan. The Old Testament talks about him. The New Testament speaks of him. Jesus taught about him. The apostles talked about him. So there are lots of things that we can learn about the devil from the Word of God. And even if you want to go outside of the Bible, and I'm not recommending that you do this to find the truth of who Satan is, but no matter where you go, in any culture that's ancient or modern, there's a manifestation of the devil. 
He's always there. He's in every kingdom of the world, and he's in every religion of the world. There is a manifestation of Satan in all of them. And so we have to ask, who is this guy? Who is this one that causes so much problem? Where did he come from? And that's what we're going to look at today in the message. This is the beginning of our message. Where, where did Satan come from? And so number one that we're going to talk about is Satan's origin. Satan's origin. Are you curious about it? Where did Satan come from? Now, one of the popular misconceptions is that Satan has always existed. That Satan has always existed and so evil has always existed. And so Satan is eternal just as God is eternal. In ancient cultures, there was a belief that there was a good God, and he was the source of all things that are good. And then there was an evil God, and he was against everything that's good, and all things that are evil came from this bad God. I think if I said that correctly, he was the bad God, the evil God, and he's the source of all the bad things that happen. And we think, well, that sounds kind of silly to us. Uh, we have more education than this. We understand this better. But that kind of thinking that there's two equal gods in the world has survived even to this time. There are many picture people that picture God as sitting on one shoulder and Satan sitting on the other shoulder. And each of them is vying for our attention. And each of them wants us to make a, a decision about which one that we're going to follow. And it could be the good God or it can be the evil God. That's our decision to make. And that equality of the two forces of good and evil, uh, survives today. And unfortunately, the myth has even been perpetuated by those who are Christians who say that we can just make a decision about God and make a decision against Satan as if that's ours alone to make. And it's really not a thing that God has more power than Satan because God's not even able to overcome the human will. And so we look at this, well, here's two equal things. You've got evil on one side, you have good on the other side. And then there are people who believe that good and evil are merely forces of the universe. It's just inherent in the system. Others believe that evil doesn't actually exist. That evil is just the absence of good. And I can leave you to chew on that one a little bit later if you like. And then there are other opinions about Satan's origin. Mormons believe that Jesus and Satan are from the same stock. And they believe that Jesus and Satan were created by God. Now, they won't go as far to say as what we claim that they say, that Jesus and Satan are brothers, but they have a great deal of trouble trying to disguise what they believe because they do believe in the universal fatherhood of God. Now, the reality of this is that none of these positions are true. It is especially untrue that Jesus was created. The Mormons are unorthodox blasphemers of God. They're Satan's liars. Because Jesus was not created as they say. Jesus is the creator. He is the eternal God. He is the self-existent God. And we find that out, uh, we found it out many times throughout our study of Matthew. But on the other hand, Satan is not eternal. Satan was created. He's a creature. He's subject to the power of the creator. And that is a fact that he does his best to hide. Now, I call your attention to two very important scriptures. John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, there John is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was in the beginning. 
Colossians chapter 1 begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in that chapter to say, For by him, that is by Jesus Christ, all things were, all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And that means that before anything was, Jesus was. In the beginning does not mean that he had a beginning, but that he always was. That he is eternal. And there is nothing that is before him because there is no such thing as before him. And so that leaves us with only one choice where Satan came from. And that is, he was created by God. Satan is a creation of God. Well, I know for most of you that's not a troublesome statement. But there are others who may hear this and they hear the broadcast of this sermon and that's a statement that will be very troublesome to them. And they will say, well, how could a good God create someone who is purely evil as Satan is? And their objection to Satan and evil becomes an objection to God himself. How can you have a good God? How can you believe in a God like that, that he could create someone who is evil, someone who has no virtue, someone who has no redeeming qualities, nothing good in him whatsoever? How could God do that? And they think, well, we've got an astute question here. And they point to uh, pat themselves on the back, but somehow they've got something here that stumped us. What are we going to do with that question? How could a good God do this? Well, the only problem with that question, or one of the problems, is it's dumbfounding in itself when God sees every one of us exactly the same way. We're exactly the same. We have no virtue. We have no redeeming qualities. There's nothing good in us whatsoever. That's what Scripture says. And I've just described to you the need we have for a Savior. And I hate to burst your bubble about this, but God does not see us any better than he does Satan. And he sees us as people that are headed for the destruction of Satan in the same place where Satan is going. But the question still looms. How can a good God create Satan? And this question goes with it. Where did evil come from? And there's a whole branch of theology that deals with that. It's called theodicy. It deals with those questions. Where did evil come from? Where did Satan come from? So how do, we, how do we deal with this? Did God create an evil being? Well, the answer to the question is no. And you say, no, wait a minute. You just said that God created Satan. How can you say no? Well, I say no because God did not create Satan evil. Now listen very carefully. He didn't create him as Satan. Satan means opposer. Satan means adversary. And God did not create anything that was opposed to him. And when Satan was created, he wasn't an adversary, not as his name describes him now. There wasn't any evil in him at the creation, but he was created in order to glorify God. His position was actually one of the highest of the order of angels. Now, he was an individual creation, as all angels are, but he was not a special entity as none of the angels are. He was created and belonged to an order, and that is the order of angels. In Psalm 148, it tells us what angels were created to do. It says, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise ye him, all his angels, praise ye him, all his hosts, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. 
Praise Him, ye heaven of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. And so everything that God created was for this, to praise and glorify Him. And that creature that now works against us was originally created to worship God, not to oppose Him. Now I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Job chapter 1. We know the story of Job, how that he was a righteous man, and how God allowed Satan to terribly afflict him in an attempt to get him to turn away from his faith and to forsake God. And so God and Satan met in Job chapter 1. In verse number 6 of Job 1, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Satan came to meet with God. He came at the same time at the sons, as the sons of God came to present themselves. Now, if you'll turn to the 38th chapter, God is speaking to Job here near the end of his affliction, and God declares himself to be the absolute sovereign of the universe. And he questions Job on some things in order to emphasize this point, that he is the sovereign, the creator of all. And so in Job 38, in verse number 4, uh, God speaks to Job and questions him, and he says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now I want you to see this, that at the creation it says the morning stars sang together and it says the sons of God shouted for joy. There is a reference to angels. Satan was one of those who was the sons of God and he came among the other sons of God. And this original purpose, the original purpose of this one who was, became Satan was the same as all other angels, that he was created to glorify God and there was no evil in him. He was a perfect being. Now, none of us knows exactly the time that angels were created. I think that they were created before time uh, because they were there when God laid the foundations of the earth. And the Bible says they sang together at the creation. Now, going back here to Job for just a moment, in 38, verse number 7, it says that the morning stars sang together. And I want you to notice that description of angels. It says, the morning stars. Now, hold that thought, and let's go to another scripture, Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. And when you find Isaiah 14, while you're listening to me, you might also want to find Ezekiel chapter 28, where we're going to read some more about this. But in... Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, where did Satan come from? Uh, who was he when he was created? Well, we have an answer for this in Isaiah 14. So let's read there in the first part of verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now here's part of the answer about Satan's creation. He was not created as Satan. Satan is a description of him. Satan is not his name. His name is Lucifer. Lucifer means morning star, it means day star, or as some say, it means the light bearer. And one of these sons of the morning that we read about in the book of Job, 
uh, Satan was created as one of them, created to glorify God, and God gave him this descriptive name, this descriptive name of Lucifer as being a morning star, a star of the morning, a light bearer. That's what Lucifer was. So he wasn't created evil. He wasn't created as Satan, but he was among the holy angels of God and worshipped God at the creation. Now, if you'll turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, we can read a little bit more of what Lucifer was like. What kind of characteristics did this angel have that God created named Lucifer? And it's a very stunning description, especially when we consider what Satan has become, and we know him now. Now, Ezekiel 28, verse number 11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Now let me tell you, first of all, something about Bible interpretation. Well, first of all, Ezekiel is talking about a king that lived in his time. The people that he spoke to would have recognized that he's talking about a king who lived in that time. And this king was very prideful in his thoughts. And these things that are said here are descriptions of his pride. But he was a very wicked man and his people were wicked. And God's judgment was going to fall on that kingdom, upon that king, because of the way that they treated Israel. So people in Ezekiel's time recognized who he was talking about, but it's evident as we read this that Ezekiel was giving more information here than what was just pertinent to this earthly king. And it's apparent that using the most extensive hyperbole, that things that are said here could not apply to a person who is just an earthly man. Now notice, notice the descriptions that it gives. Verses 12 and 13. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, isn't that a hint that someone else is intended here? Verse number 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. And in verse 15, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created. Those are not descriptions of an earthly king. The accolades here have to be for someone else. And so the king of Tyrus in the passage becomes a symbol of Lucifer. And what we're looking at here is Lucifer and what he was before he fell. Or as in verse 15 says, till iniquity was found in thee. Now notice some of the characteristics that the scripture gives of him. First of all, he was beautiful and wise. He was perfect in beauty. Or as we might say, he was a model of perfection. Another way to say that is that he was the crowning achievement of all of the angels, that he surpassed all of them with his beauty. He was created and given wisdom. He was very discerning. And that gives you a clue as to his abilities. He still uses wisdom, only his wisdom now has been switched from a godly wisdom to be used in diabolical for diabolical purposes. But he knows every trick of his trade. 
He knows how to use all of them to his best advantage, and he knows how to use each of them on you. And so his wisdom degenerated to be used for selfish purposes, and he used that wisdom to compare himself to the rest of God's creation. And he became enamored with what he saw. He saw his own beauty, that it was stunning. And it's accentuated in this passage by comparing it to precious stones. The sardius, a beautiful ruby. The red color of the ruby. Topaz, a yellow color. The sparkling diamond. The beautiful blue of sapphire. The beautiful green of the emerald. Those are beautiful colors that you find in the rainbow. And you can apply that any way you want to the descriptions of Satan, if you like. So this picture of Lucifer is not about a hideous, horned creature with a head and hooves of, like a goat and a body of a man. No, Lucifer was beautiful. And there's nothing in the Bible that even suggests that the physical beauty of him is gone. Actually, quite the contrary. When, when Lucifer appeared as the serpent in the garden, he wasn't the slithering snake that you see today. But the serpent appeared upright, probably with the most beautiful colors that anybody has ever seen or could see, that Adam could ever see. And Adam was enamored with the beauty of Lucifer as he appeared as that snake. No, the physical beauty, I don't think, is gone. And when you think about uh, what the Apostle Paul said about him, he alluded to the abilities of Satan, and he said he can appear as an angel of light. And we think about how beautiful the angels of God are. They're beautiful creatures that, that have been created to magnify the beauty of the holiness of the Lord. And Satan is able to appear that way. Secondly, it says here that he was the anointed cherub. Now that's a particularly interesting description. That speaks to his rank. The angels, uh, the cherubs are angels that are of the highest order. Oh, it seems like there is a hierarchy of angels according to Scripture. There are cherubim, there are seraphim, there are archangels. Those are divisions in the groups of angels. There are four angels that are actually mentioned in Scripture. Lucifer, Gabriel, Michael, and Apollyon. And that is uh, an indication that those four angels may be of the highest order, the highest hierarchy, the top of the structure of the hierarchy of angels. And there are so many angels that they can't even be counted. Hebrews 12.22 says, But ye are come into Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. That kind of gives you an idea of how high that Lucifer was in the order. There are billions upon billions and billions of angels that were beneath him. Now, some speculate that Michael the archangel, who is the warrior angel, is chief of all the angels, and he would be the only one that rivals Lucifer in power. Lucifer was a cherub, and the cherubim are associated with God's throne. Now, in the tabernacle, there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And that was a very heavy curtain that had sewn into it images of cherubim. Now, I have a, a picture of that for you, an artist's rendering of that. And this was a beautiful curtain that hung, separating these two compartments in the tabernacle. And it is sewn into it are these cherubim. And these angels are seen there guarding the way into the holy of holies because that's the place where God met with his people. And then in the next picture, we see what was behind that curtain, that there was an Ark of the Covenant, 
And the lid on the top of that box was called the mercy seat. And there are two cherubim that are on the mercy seat with their wings outstretched, touching at the tips. And between those cherubim dwelled the light of the glory of God. That showed that God was there meeting with his people. So what I'm trying to tell you by this is that Lucifer was close to God that he was one of the cherubim, that he was up personal and close with God. Among all the billions of angels that there are, Lucifer was right there in the throne room of God, and he was the anointed cherub that covered. And that probably is a reference to Lucifer's guardianship of God's throne. Just like those cherubs you see were over the mercy seat, they guarded that sacred place. And so God selected Lucifer as, uh, uh, and gave him a position of honor to be right there in the throne room. Now that description again is astounding. None of God's creation was more beautiful than Lucifer. Beauty and wisdom and position and authority and in the hierarchy of angels. And there was no evil in him. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15 gives us a description of Lucifer. That's Lucifer, that's not Satan. And so he was the brilliant day star of the creation, beautiful and perfect. But can you sense that something is about to happen? Can you sense that with power and position and personality and beauty, can you sense that something might develop? Look at verse 15. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. And that is more proof that Ezekiel could not be talking about an earthly king. He's not talking about the king of Cyrus there because no man has ever been perfect since Adam. And so this has to be referring to Lucifer who became Satan. And considering all that he was, we have to wonder if Lucifer was not in mind when this next scripture was written in the book of Proverbs. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so what happened to Lucifer? Well, that's next. He defected from God. He saw his beauty. He reflected on his beauty. He thought about the position that he had over so many of the angels, and he felt that he needed more. And he thought that the other angels would recognize that he needed more, and they would see to it that he got more, and that they would love him and worship him more than they did God. And so in Ezekiel 28, verse 17, it says, Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. Now, I hope you still have your finger in Isaiah 14 because you need to go back there. And let's read some more here in Isaiah. Isaiah 14, in verse 12, that we read just a moment ago. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? which did weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And so the beauty of Lucifer, the wisdom of him, the position, that's not enough for him. Oh, he began to thirst for more. Why should he bow to God? He didn't want to submit to God. He wanted God to submit to him. He wanted to be God. And he actually thought that he could pull it off. Now you go back to that temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. And there you can see that from the time of the creation until that point when Christ came, that Lucifer had not given up. 
And still today, Lucifer is deluded about this, and he still believes that somehow Jesus Christ is going to be subject to him, that he will rule the world. And that thought goes on year after year, decade after decade, century after century, even millennia after millennia. Satan is not going to give up that fight. And so there is a cosmic struggle that began before God created the world, before Eden, and Lucifer struggles to gain power to become the ruler of heaven and earth. He tries to usurp the authority of Jesus Christ. And Paul said that we wrestle against him. And the reason that we do wrestle against him is because he wants us also to become subjects of his kingdom rather than subjects of the Lord God. Now, I suppose at this point that we ought to ask ourselves, are we going to surrender to him? Are we going to give in to him? Are we going to give up the fight? It's relentless against us. Are we going to fight him or are we going to give it up? And I'm sad to say that it looks like many Christians have already given up. Some Christians look like Satan has made them his full-fledged followers. They have the stench of hell on them. And they drag into church on a Sunday looking like they've been rolling around in the dirt with Satan all week long. Now, we're not sure when Lucifer defected. Some speculate it was before the earth was created. That, of course, brings in uh, the question the timing of the creation of angels in general. Some believe it's in the white space between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Others say it's shortly after the creation because we don't know how long that Adam was in the garden before Satan came to him. But as we think about that, there's another interesting point to ponder. What is it? Or is there something that pushed Satan over the edge? Is there something that happened that caused him to say, I can't take it anymore, I have to be God? Is there something that caused him to rebel? Is there something that caused the leap into rebellion? And there are many who believe there was, and that cause was the creation of man. Now let's consider it for just a minute. Lucifer had power and position. He was appointed as the anointed cherub. He was beautiful beyond imagination. And there he was, basking in the closeness of the glory of God. So there wasn't a hairbreadth between him and God's throne as far as he could see. But then God revealed there's another plan, that Lucifer was not to remain next to God as God's favorite, if you will. Instead, God decided to create man. And the intent was that man would assume a position that is higher than the angels. And so between Lucifer and God, there would be a race of men, of other created beings, and angels would not only be subject to God, but they'd also become subject to man. That angels would become servants of men. And did you know that that is what God intends for you as a believer in Christ? Angels are higher in authority than we are now, but when the glorification comes, we're going to be above angels. We will become rulers of angels. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent to those who shall be the heirs of God. And so when Lucifer discovered that not only would he have to serve God, but now he's going to be pushed down to serve man, then a new dynamic has been introduced into his discontent. Oh, he would have to serve men that God created out of the dirt of the earth. And so Lucifer looked at those precious stones of his beauty, the, the examples of 
the glory of his beauty. And then he looked at the disgust of the dirt and he said, no way this is going to happen. Now, can you see what God has done for us? Why did God choose us over angels? Why would he exalt what he made out of dirt to be higher than these beautiful creatures who are also God's servants? Why are we higher than them? I just say, don't try to figure out God. Just be glad that he did. Be glad that God is going to do this. But Lucifer couldn't rejoice in that at all. Lucifer wasn't happy with his position. He wasn't going to do this. If he wasn't going to have God rule over him, how would he ever have man rule over him? And so he defected. He made his play. He rebelled. And in that rebellion, he stirred up other angels who were also prideful. And when Lucifer had that first prideful thought, there wasn't any going back. The die was cast. Sin had entered into the created order. And now Lucifer and God are at odds. And so Lucifer became Satan, the adversary. Now understand, Satan is still wise. He didn't lose those faculties. He's nobody's fool. And so he knew that he would need help. He needs followers to overcome God. Now, he stirs up men against God, but quite frankly, men don't have very much power, do they? We don't have too much power or none in the spiritual world. And so Satan had to have other help. And so what he did was to stir up a rebellion in heaven. And not only did he stir that up, but he, I mean, when he stirred it up, he lied to angels, to other angels, about what he could do with their help. And he promised that they would never have to sit under the feet of God, and they wouldn't have to sit under the feet of men, if they would just follow him, that he would take care of all of that. And so they rebelled. And in his rebellion, Satan took one-third of all the angels with him. He said, where do you get that kind of stuff? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, it says... And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, I don't have time to go into all of what that means, but I want you to understand the great red dragon it's talking about is Satan. And the stars refer to angels. And so what Satan did was he took a third part of those stars of the angels with him. Now, I don't know how many that is. All I know is that one-third of an innumerable number is a lot. There's a lot of them. And these angels are known as demons. Now, in your King James Version of the Bible, you won't find the word demons. Instead, the word is devils. But there is only actually one devil as the... Bible actually describes it. There's only one devil, but there are many demons. And these fallen angels that followed Satan are of a lesser order than him. That's why they're followers. And so they followed Satan. They are the demons. Now, there's one of them who's named Apollyon. He may have been a member of the upper echelon that Satan was able to convince and take with him. Now, I want us to think, though, for just a moment about the number of helpers that Satan has. Now, I'm trying to close out for this morning. I realize it's late, but if you'll just stay with me a little bit longer. How can we get a picture, some kind of a picture in our mind's eye about how many angels there are? Well, the clue to that is the word stars. Whenever the angels are compared to stars, scientists tell us that there are 200 billion stars that are in our galaxy. And they say that there are 
uh, at least 200 billion more galaxies, and our galaxy is not even one of the biggest ones. So you can kind of do the math on that, and that would tell you that Satan has a lot of help. I mean, that's not even a word that I could use to say he has plenty of help. That doesn't even describe what he has. Well, how are those numbers of fallen angels helpful to Satan? Ultimately, they're not helpful at all because God can step on billions and billions and billions of angels just like he steps on a roach. He destroys them at the word of his power. But these angels, these fallen angels, the demons, are helpful in Satan's immediate plan. You see, Satan is not really God. I started out with that, didn't I? Satan is not really God. He has a title of God, the God of this world, because he attempts to usurp the authority of God in the world, and God allows him to do that for a time. And since Satan is not God, what he can't do is be everywhere at the same time. Omnipresence is an attribute of God himself. Satan is not God, so he can't be present everywhere at the same time. Instead, we say that Satan is ubiquitous. That means that he appears to be everywhere at the same time. And this is because he has direct control over so many of these evil angels. There are billions upon billions and billions of them. There are these demons that work for him, so it appears that Satan is everywhere at one time. There's enough influence from all these evil angels that Satan's influence extends to every person that there is in the world, everyone on the planet, everywhere, Satan seems like he's there. But it's very doubtful that you or anyone that you know has ever been personally afflicted by Satan. And that's because Satan has bigger fish to fry than you and me. Satan sits on the Supreme Court. Satan's in the Oval Office. Satan's at the Vatican. Now, I'll, I'll leave you to think about those things for a little bit because I'm out of time. But I hate to leave you thinking about it just that way, about this oppressive weight of all these evil angels that are around you. And so rather than think about one-third of all these, bill these billions of angels that there are, and billions of billions of angels that may be after you at any one time, then you need to think about this. Two-thirds of them aren't. Two-thirds of them belong to us. Two-thirds of them are God's elect angels that'll never fall, that'll never turn against you, and they are there for your protection every day. And all you need to do is to lean on Jesus Christ and His power, and you have all the power that you ever need to defeat Satan and his helpers. So we have the most powerful God, who, the, the great God who's on our side, and all of those angels, those elect angels of God. Now one day there's going to come a showdown. The whole world and all of its creatures will be brought to this great war in which they will be defeated and they will bow and admit God's authority. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And the question for you today is which side do you want to be on? Whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the winning side? Or do you want to be on the losing side? And I can tell you this, that if you die without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be on the losing side. And where you will end is where Satan will end in the very same destruction that Satan will be destroyed with, and that is in the fires of hell. Now, as you're thinking about this over these next few weeks, as I'm teaching about Satan, just think about this. We're going to get to that part too. We're going to get to the part of Satan's final defeat, and we're going to look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about the victory of God and his people 
over Satan. And so I encourage you now to call on the name of the Lord, call on Him, trust in Him, and end at His throne rather than the same place where Satan will be in the everlasting fires of hell. Trust Jesus Christ. That's the way that you defeat Satan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we receive from your word. Even though we read so many bad things and it looks like so much difficulty and the fight is against us every single day and we don't have the strength in it uh, us to do it, yet here we find in the word of God that all the power that's ever needed belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and he is able to help us to overcome this great enemy. But Lord, we begin by understanding who he is, what he can do, never turning Uh, diverting our eyes away from being circumspect to look out for him around every corner, from every angle, because he will be there. And so as we study your word, as we depend upon you, as we pray, as we dedicate ourselves to serving you, we can defeat our great adversary. Help us to do that, Lord. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.